Welcome to the Mike and Much Podcast. I am your host, Mike Veerman. I am here with my friend and trusted producer, as always, Max Kerman. Max, what's going on? Uh, not much. Busy day here in Toronto. That's did, correct. I did about 15 phoners for the Arkells with local radio stations and publications across the country and prepping prepping for our tour. What kind of questions do you get asked on these local radio stations? Ooh, what, I mean, the one question that kind of sucks is like, what can we expect from the show? <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, I don't know. Like, you're going to have your... Uh, Music? Yeah, you're going to lose your voice and you're going to shake your ass. And, you know, I use, I use the shaking your ass line. That's, well, that's a Mike Beerman original. Oh, I'm glad. Um, but yeah, um, so I did that today. And uh, yeah, it's been kind of a crazy time with... Uh, with Obama's final speech last night. Yes. I, I saw in our champagne boys message group that you got very emotional watching uh, it. Oh my God. You know, when, uh, when he was talking to Michelle, I started crying and Lauren was right next to me and I started like rubbing her back. Ah. And, um, and then what happened, uh, Dan, our friend Dan in the champagne boys group, he sent me a link of something Obama did after the Newtown. uh, shooting at that elementary school, Sandy Hook. And it's a story. Did you read the story? No. Oh God. Basically, you know, there's no protocol for this sort of thing. Uh, Especially at elementary school and Obama went to go see the family and he essentially went from classroom. I think they set up the families in groups of three or four families per classroom. Who lost a child. Who lost a child. And he went and they'd sort of set up each room with like refreshments and Kleenexes, basically like that's what the, the team did. And Obama went into each room and he hugged each, each family. He, he, uh, you know, was crying with them, asked questions about their kids and what, what their life looked like. And, and the, some of the siblings were there and he'd like the younger siblings, some of them were two and three years old and he'd pick them up and laugh with them and play with them. And then he'd come back out in the hallway and his aides were, it was just Obama and the family. So the aides were just sort of waiting out in the hallway for them. And he'd sort of had to like collect himself mm. and go do it again. Can you imagine? Wow. And then they just talked about, you know, that's the sort of, uh, the leader, the leader you want and leader who, who doesn't feel sorry for themselves. He just knows that it's people look to him for strength and that's what he provided in that moment. And I thought he provided that strength and leadership his whole eight years. Well, and politics left, right aside, it seems like Obama has an inherent decency yeah. that you can't fake, that there's an authenticity, that there's sort of, he cares and it, it it radiates off of him. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's so easy to be cynical about politicians because a lot of them come from money and a lot of them come from the private sector where they have just made millions of dollars. And it seems like, you know, vying for the presidency is just another type of power play that they want. Yep. But Obama, he came from community organizing. You know, he went to Harvard Law School, and most of the kids that go to Harvard Law School end up getting a six-figure job immediately on Wall Street or working for a consulting company. He went to the south side of Chicago and was a community organizer and was trying to, like, help that community become engaged and give them a voice. And so he, I think he comes from such a decent place and a place where he's really you know, sees the good in people and, and it's not about him and a play for power. It's about empowering other people. And, uh, yeah. And his, so his speech was amazing. And, uh, and reading that story right after the speech really had me in tears. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, obviously we're recording this the day after, um, those pretty salacious reports came out that 
the Russians might have compromising video of Trump. So yeah. that story broke right before Obama's farewell speech. I was sitting in a basketball game. I was at the Raptors Celtics game. Big win last night. Yeah. Um, and in our Champagne Boys group, this story pops up about Trump. And what an interesting contrast, right, between all those things you just said about Obama, where a story like this about Trump and being, you know, blackmailed by the Russians, whether it's true or not, or it was a sort of an irresponsible report for BuzzFeed to go forward with and CNN to corroborate. It's like, it's just going to be... Dude, where does this end? It's going to be a draining four years is what I'm saying is it's just like, he's going to, he's not even the president yet. He's the president elect. And it's just like, anyway, it's, well, yeah. it's this weird blend of like, it's sad. It's scary. It's entertaining. Should I laugh? Should I cry? The whole thing. Like, what do <laughs> That's I a great think? Way to put it. Should I laugh or should I cry? Like, what do I, what, what do I think about it? It's just like your brain's working overtime. You're consuming all this information. And it's like, it's like, if I wanted Hillary to win, if only so we could go back to our lives, you know, yeah, the and, way it and was. And endure the boring scandals that the Clintons would provide. Yeah. You know, you know what's interesting is that I was really into the presidential election and I followed it pretty closely. And then Trump gets elected. November's kind of a gong show with things that he was up to. December's a gong show. By the time January rolls around, he's not even the president still. I was like kind of getting tired of it. Like I was like, I, I, I began thinking... I'm not going to really care what's going on. There's too much to take in. It's too much of a gong show. And then last night, I was in, your brother goes to me, you see this Trump stuff? And he doesn't follow politics. So I just assumed it was like another asinine thing that he had said. But it turns out it was this very salacious report. I'm sure everybody's heard about it right now. Did you, do you know what the report was? Well, that he went to Russia and liked to get pissed on by prostitutes. I think he paid prostitutes to pee on the bed in the hotel where the Obamas had stayed. It's, oh yeah. It's very, it's all very weird and complicated, but apparently there's the Russians have footage of it and he's also in debt to them. So basically it's like, he'll kind of do what they want because they can expose him is essentially what this intelligence report had in it. Yeah. That leaked to the press. Pun <laughs> so it's just like intended. so absurd. And I guess the question I have for you is like, yeah, where does this end? Like, if you had to make a prediction today, Mike, like, does he get impeached? Does he, I'm going to give you three options. Does he get impeached? Does he get demolished in at the next election in four years? And is like the laughing stock because it's been such a joke. Or does the nation become even more divided and he, and, and he empowers, you know, the group that voted him in and galvanizes them and he wins another one. If you had to guess, if you just take a random guess, what, what would be... Uh, I, I mean, it's there's too many pieces in play. Like the thought of him getting reelected is like that doesn't seem out of the realm of the possibility. Like if if they can suppress more voting laws, and then in those like four major states that he won, you know, like uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania, um, Florida, places where it's like every time he says or claims, rightly or wrongly, that like a car company kept jobs in a state instead of going to Mexico or whatever. If people see enough of that and then the base that voted him in believe enough of that, they're going to vote for him still. And because of Electoral College, it's like it doesn't matter. He, like he could lose the, the popular vote next time by eight million. And it's like if those states vote for him, he'll get back in. But as far as like just the way he's going to run, like what that government looks like under him will be very interesting to see. It's like he did that press conference today where he basically said like, I'm leaving my businesses to my sons. Uh-huh. I won't talk about business with them. So there will be no conflict of <laughs> yeah. interest. Okay. You know, he had his lawyer basically go through it all. She comes up to the podium. He, like, I don't think he believes he should be held accountable for anything. 
And I don't know what kind of tools they'll have to hold him accountable. Like they say, well, we have these like ethics oversights committees and people will do this. It's like, I don't know, man, like nobody's doing anything thus far. Like everyone's saying it's basically the beginning of like an authoritarian America. Uh And it, it's kind of starting to look like that. Like he doesn't answer questions. Yeah, he doesn't. Yeah. He's definitely not held accountable to anything. And you know, the funny thing is that Trump, the scope of, uh, the responsibility Trump has in his life and who he's accountable has totally changed. But he spent the first 70 years of his life not being accountable to anybody but his himself, basically, yeah. or his dad. But it's just like there are a lot of things you can get away with being a skeezy private business owner that you shouldn't be able to get away with as the president of the United States. And it's amazing how he seems to not differentiate the two. Okay, here's what I'd say. Obama is such an incredible public speaker and he's so motivational and he, and you can be proud of him up there. Just, just seeing him made me think of every other politician going, good Lord, this guy's amazing. You know, it's like, is there anybody who comes close to him when it comes to being able to hold the room mm-hmm. and to speak to the, the best part of yourself? And so I guess, and I think that Obama, if we're given the chance and Obama said this himself to, to run again, would have killed Trump. I think there is something special about Obama that, and his message of unity that even in a very bipartisan place can unite people or at least at the very least get the majority of the vote. My question is who is that person on the left going to be to, to be someone who's a unifying figure and to be able to win those battleground States. Um, and, and, and so a person like Trump, an authoritarian figure, won't win next time. And I don't know who that person is. And that's the one thing. I don't think they know who that person is either. Yeah. And that's the, uh, what about Van Jones? You like Van Jones? He's like a talking head on CNN. I mean, listen, I think chance the rapper, (laughs) I'd vote for chance. Not that we'll have a chance to vote at all, but I feel like the thing is, it's like one of the, like with Trump, he doesn't play by the rules, which is one of the reasons people liked him or voted for him. Cause they go, Oh, we hate Washington. We hate politicians. and, And he doesn't play by the rules. The, the other side of not playing by the rules is he doesn't play by the rules, <laughs> like good or bad. Yeah, I'm re- so I'm reading. I was telling you this before we started recording. I'm reading this book about uh, social about. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman and Michael Lewis, who's my favorite writer, just wrote a book about him and his research. It's called The Undoing Project. Um, and he talks about sort of behavioral economics and this and this idea of social priming in part of the book, where you can sort of prime people to think and act in certain ways depending on like signifiers that are around them, whether it's like signage or, you know, what, and, and people have been, so I'll give you one example. There are, uh, studies that show when you have to vote on uh, funding for education, if you put the polling station in a school, you're more likely to get votes for increased funding in education because just by the fact of holding it in a public school, you get, you remind people of what, you know, public schools look like and what it means to be inside of one. So, um, right. Like, so like if on the ticket, it's like more funding for public schools that the place where they would vote for that, instead of being at like a, a rec center or, or a like, church or like, something like that, you put it in a school, they're now in the school. They're surrounded by yeah, they're education. More, they're reminded of, Oh, why this is important. So yes, we should increase funding for public school. Exactly. So the, my, the pro and I started thinking about this in relation to Trump and Obama and Trump has this message that the media is crooked. He's priming people all the time. You know, it's like, we got to look out for ourselves you know, people are trying to attack us. You know, it's, it's a very dark picture that he primes people with all the time through his Twitter, through his presence on, on all the networks. On his press conference today, he called CNN fake news and would not let the reporter ask a question. Did you see that clip? No, God, no, I haven't watched I'll it I'll show you after that. Good Lord. So, 
and then there's the other side of things where you can prime people, I think, to, to think about how in, being inclusive is a good thing. Like what, basically what Obama stood for, which is, you know, we need to lead by example. We need to be generous. We need to help our brothers and sisters in and outside of America. And, you know, we need to start priming people to act with the best interest of everybody and not just themselves. I think Trump, uh, you know, represents an attitude where you're only looking out for yourself and, uh, and we need to shift that in the culture. I think there are cultural norms out there that exist in countries where that is, it's commonplace. I don't know, something as simple as like giving up your seat to the old person. Like those, and those are things that are developed over time. And I, and I'd like to see, yeah, it's learned like societal behavior. Societal- it's like something that we do because we see others do it. And it's like, it feels good. We're all helping each other out. A question that I had that I, I was, I was actually talking about this on New Year's with uh, Julian and Sam. I was like, you know, there's just been this wave of like, like what you're talking about, like, like us against them and protect our own and sort of like tribalism that started with kind of Brexit. And then that wave kind of continued into like America where it's like, no, like, no, we've had it. And like all of these snowflakes and like bleeding liberals, it's like, let's help everybody and everybody's special. It's like, there's kind of been this pushback, right? With conservatives that are like, no, let's stop using our money to help the the bottom 1% because they're not helping themselves and they're lazy. You know, I was like, do you think that wave will like push its way up to Canada? Because we are a very like socialist country in a lot of ways. It's like we redistribute like our wealth um, sort of in a way that we feel comfortable with while still having capitalism. And it's like, it works here. You know, we have universal healthcare. Uh, we do like help the people that need the help at the bottom. And I think ultimately that makes for a better society. And it's like, yeah, we pay a lot of taxes here, but I mean, that's why it works up here for, you know, and it's flawed, but it works. Do you see this kind of like conservative wave pushing in? Yeah, it's a real balancing act. It's a really tough thing because you want to keep on pushing for those like progressive attitudes and this, and like this idea that a rising tide lifts all boats and that, you know, some people at the top got to give some of their money back. But if you it up and if you, you know, miscalculate, you know, some political forks in the road you know, and I'd say this about Trudeau, he's got to be really careful because I agree. The, the more it's very easy to ignite that underbelly. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, because that underbelly is based on fear. That's yeah. its my, that's its major motivator, right? That's what drives it. So it's like, if they fear they're going to like have less money than they had before or uh, immigrants are taking their jobs exactly. or whatever. And then, then you think of a guy like Kevin O'Leary, who's, uh, you know, the Dragon's Den fella who... I gonna, see him in the commissary like three times a week. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's a col- he, he's colleague on, of ours, I suppose. Yeah, he's always on BNN. And, you know, he's the kind of guy that gets... that He kind of scares me, <laughs> you know, honestly. And I, but he's really charismatic. He can rally that base. And he can rally that base and, like, appeal to people's sensibilities who who feel like, you know, government are irresponsible. Their sense of entitlement. Too, yeah, or they're too slow and we can do this better. And when, it, when people have individual liberties you know, the society is much better off, which I agree to a certain extent. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, and, and, you know, that's what Trump was, you know, Trump, Trump was very good at speaking to, to that kind of person. And, uh, and, and so anyway, if you're going to be a Trudeau t- kind of figure where it's like, you know, we welcome all refugees or we stand by, you know, all these progressive causes, uh, and which I personally identify with 100%, you just got to be really, really careful. It's a balancing act. 
All right. Do you want to move on from Trump? Yes. I, yeah, I like that, by the way. Yeah. Well, I mean, we don't normally go that deep into politics, but I feel like it's a very political time. We should. We should keep going deep. <laughs> Next episode, we'll, we'll start we're, our own offshoot pod. We're just a couple of unqualified knuckleheads yeah. know, sitting around the bar talking politics. Hey, that's my favorite thing to do. Um, so today on the show, we have Luke Spiller. From the Struts. From the Struts, the UK glam rock quartet. A lovely British fellow who, um, yeah, this opportunity came across uh, the pod and we were like, absolutely, let's talk to these guys. You know, this guy's got a, a very sort of Freddie Mercury vibe, so much so that he talks about auditioning for the Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, Freddie Mercury biopic after Sasha Baron Cohen dropped out. That's right. And he, he ended up being, you know, because he has a public image that mm-hmm. is very wild, at least a stage persona. And so when you get these kinds of people, you're like, what, what am I walking into? Like, how much will he resemble that person, like, when you're in a one-on-one situation? Yeah, he's very much, like you said, like, they're, he's very much a rock star and sort of embodies, like, being a front man and, and sort of projecting that and being that. And so you do wonder, it's like, oh, this dude's pretty, he's larger than life in these videos and, you know, in these interviews and stuff. Um, and you don't know what you're going to get. And then I sat down across from him and we got into it, man. Like, uh, like he went deep. He was very open. Talked about, you know, drug use, uh, performing, um, drinking. The ups and downs of his band. Ups and downs of his band, of his life, um, what he wants out of music. And, and yeah, it was like a great conversation. I have a Luke, Luke Spiller story. Ooh. Arkells played with the Struts at a Lollapalooza after party last summer. And did I tell you this? No. Oh, I didn't tell you this. I thought, anyway, he, so the, um, I just have this one image of him just before he's about to go on stage of him like, kind of like doing jumping jacks, like pumping himself up and then picking up his girlfriend and like, like swinging her around and then like making out with her and then like walking right onto the stage. Really? And I was like, this is such a rock star move. It was awesome. <laughs> and, he was, and, he, and keep in mind, you got to like, he's like wearing bell bottoms. He's got like eyeliner on. He does like puts on lots of makeup. He wears like the lifts, like the platform, like he, big shoes. Yeah. So he looks crazy. So just like, it's not just like a normal, like hipster dude doing that kind of thing. It's like this, like, crazy Brit. Yeah, like 70s Bowie or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, and I was like, I was like, I like that about him. Yeah. It's cool. Want to get to it? Let's get to it. I kind of wanted to start back at the beginning with you. Um, you grew up in a, a religious household. I did? Yeah. And I sort of wanted to know sort of like, um, I guess really like, what are your folks like, first of all? Mm-hmm. And then, like, are there lessons from that upbringing that you keep today in this sort of really unconventional career that you have? Yeah, from an unconventional sort of, like, in a lot of ways, it was an unconventional childhood because, you know, my dad is, you know, both my mum and dad are devout Christians, like, still now. And uh, my dad is a sort of, like, he preaches, but he, he... used to record a lot of albums back in the day, but now he um, sort of like does his sermon through song. So it's a real individual like thing to do if you're a preacher and you normally, you know, you'd go and read verses out of the Bible, interpret them, you know, animate them, get your message across, you know, and using the Bible as sort of like your go-to text. Yeah. But he kind of started very young, around about my age, well, younger as well, by doing the same thing, but he would make songs. So he's delivering that message through music? Through, through music, yeah. Like, with a guitar? With a guitar, just him and a guitar. He had, uh, he had this, he had, he's always had ovations, 
really nice ovation guitars and he and he actually gave me one of his recent ones that he used to play a lot when I was a kid. So that's kind of like that was really as well my first experience of live music was in church. And uh, you know, on top of doing his sermons and travelling around he would lead the worship um or like the lo the church band. Sure. You know, in between the sermons. So he was always doing that and we were always moving around, you know, throughout the southwest of England for reasons I just think my mum kind of gets like cold feet and I don't know what it is, but she doesn't let the grass grow right under her feet for very long. And I she just I think both my parents they, they work together as well. They um they started up a, a rest home for people with dementia when they were sort of like in their early twenties. How do you do that if you're moving around a lot though? So well, like I said, in the Southwest, you know, compared to like America and the States, you know, if you were to take the Southwest as a county, you can get up and down it within two hours. Oh, got you. Okay. Yeah. So, um, but within that, you've got lots of different schools, lots of different villages, communities and, and whatnot. So, you know, that they, they worked with each other and still do now. And uh, I think houses and property has always been like, a project as well, which they kind of love. So we were always moving around. But that really kind of helped me to sort of like learn the art of reinventing myself. Well, it seems like both of those things, your father performing in these sermons and maybe your, your mother's wanderlust or need to keep it moving, mm -hmm. almost lends itself perfectly to your lifestyle now. It does, in a weird way. I don't know if I'd be able to put up with it if I hadn't experienced you know, that so early on. And, and um, you know, like I went to about 13 different schools, 12, mm. like growing up. And, you know, I, I took... What I learned very quickly is that I could, I could go into a room of kids of my age and I could suss out exactly who was who. Mm. You know, like um, I could read people and... Um, I'd know who the troublemaker was. I'd know who the quiet people were. I'd know who the the nice girl was. You you sort of had this ability to size up the room immediately because yeah. of how many rooms you'd been in. Exactly. Well, it can go one of two ways, I think, when you travel a lot. You either sort of become a bit of an introvert, and so yeah. you go into all these new places and you just sort of keep to yourself. Did you find that you were more, I don't know, charismatic or... Like, would you sort of try to ingratiate yourself or get into these groups? Well, there was... It was a it was a series of trial and error. <laughs> right. You know, it really was. Like in my early years, you know, I was I was you know, I wasn't necessarily sort of like the misfit, but I wasn't ever kind of like, you know, what you guys would describe as kind of like the jock, you know, the really kind of like popular guy. Um but as soon as I would start to kind of find my feet in a group of friends, I was suddenly catered off to somewhere else. So mm -hmm. Then I had this thing like, okay, well, I just take what I learned and then I was able to kind of like, again, trial and error, trial and error, reinvent myself and go with a different group of friends and whatnot. And it was really to the point where I got to uh, 15, which was um, the longest I ever spent in a school was three academic years in a row. 
and it was really the most important school I went to, which was a, um, it's now an arts academy, but it was an all-boys school um, in Bristol, my, my home city, and uh, that's really where I started, like, my first band, and really discovered, like, my passion and um, drive for the stage, drama, you know, playwriting, devising scenes and playing music, playing in the jazz band, singing in the jazz band, you know, that, that whole experience really excelled me. Yeah, well, it's always interesting with the arts because people will get into, you know, songwriting, creating music, and it's, it's an organic experience. But then in order to sort of become successful at it, I think you need to have a, an inherent amount of ambition. And sometimes those aren't, um, they don't go together. It's almost like we want our musicians to sort of fall into success. You know, they're kind of the thing. Have you been ambitious and had an idea of what success looked like from early on? Yeah, always, you know. Um, always wanted to be the best. Always wanted to put on the best performance. Always wanted to look the best. Always wanted to sound the best. You know, even with my, I've only been in two bands. The Struts and my high school, school band. And, you know, that one was never destined to, to, to go to the heights that the struts have. But that was always sort of a f***ing around band. Learning it things. was, it was. Again, it was trial and error, but it was a very important learning experience. And, um, you know, but again, the same ethos. It was like, you know, we still rehearsed the f*** load. We still <laughs> wanted to, we still were ferociously, like... Um, competitive with anyone even if it was our friends bands and stuff like that it was like we always had to be the best and musically it was it was from the same hymn sheet as well it was you know and I wrote I, I actually wrote a song where does she go which is the last track on everybody once and I was performing that when I was 16 and I'm 28 now and it's mm. and it's it's been around that long it ended up on the album yeah you know well, it's interesting, like, when success like this comes after sort of a certain amount of time, I guess it can be appreciated more. I think I, I read that from you, that yeah. basically you were like, if this had happened in the first go-around, and I think with a lot of bands, there's, like, starts and stops. You know, you guys had a label, that label sort of mm -hmm. dissolved. Were there times along the way where you were like, this is not working out, I maybe need to start looking at something else, or was it like this or bust? It was always kind of like this or bust, you know, I was without a band when my when my school band broke up it was 2 weeks before me and Adam met. Yep. And you know th the only time where I we really kind of like both looked at each other and sort of thought oh god you know what's going on that was actually when we were in the struts so it, it it's never been the point of oh god this isn't going to work out but you know I I 100% believe that everything happened for a reason, like the stalling of the label, the stalling of the album, the fact that, you know, we're still not being played in the, in the UK on the radio is, I still, yes, it's frustrating, but I think um, I'm so happy that I'm not falling into those other f***ing UK bands who are just so complacent with, like, being recognized in their home country you know and then what you find is all those bands just kind of like lose their ambition mm. you know and i would have been that band and that person as well had it happened sooner i i could thoroughly like admit that you know i'm not an idiot um 
but I'm yet yeah, I'm so thankful that it hasn't happened because suddenly we got American management and they said this has so much potential. Take your view from here and now look at this universe, i.e., America, Canada, and uh, go for that. You know, and um, now I'm thinking actually, well, how much cooler is that? You know, it's kind of like good. You know. Sure. Why go for somewhere which is the size of that when you can conquer a place which is the size of Europe? And you almost sort of reverse engineer it, where you almost become successful over here, and then it ends up yeah. going back to the UK anyway. Um, in those sort of development uh, years where you're, you know, figuring it out, I read that the one label sort of wanted you guys to remove a couple members, which is always such an, an mm -hmm. interesting dynamic to me. Is there a party that goes, well, no, I'm not removing them? And then ultimately you did. And what does that conversation go like? It was nothing short of, like, awful. The whole experience was horrible, really. We, we were put in a corner by the management at the time um, who had basically kind of, like, winged it that we were on that label. We were, we were kind of, like, inherited. Mm. Actually, no, we weren't at that point. We were actually were still on our smaller label. And they had basically said that, you know, that the, the other two members aren't working out. If you don't do something about it now, then the little sort of like um, momentum that you have now is going to be ultimately taking away, taken away. We'll take that away from We'll you. take that away. You know, you're not even priority at the moment. So think about what it's going to be like if you don't play ball with us. So me and Adam were just in a complete shit show, so to speak, and, you know, it was it was more difficult for us, and we were kind of put in that position because the band started with me and Adam. We got the record deal from the two of us. We had been solely writing the music between the two of us. The You're other, the nucleus of the group. Exactly, right. and, and the other two had come in, and we were together for, like, a year and a half, but... God, it was awful. You know, you, you, you bond your brothers and and whatnot. You're living with each other. We we had some fantastic shows. And, uh, yeah, we I remember we came back from London after that meeting and they were, funny enough, they were rehearsing out of their own time, trying to get Shit. better. Yeah. And we were just stood by the window in the house waiting for the van to pull round. And, yeah, we just, like, had to say it to them and... You know, they were, at the time, they were fantastic about it. They were, you know, they were like, fuck, you know, we understand. And, oh, my God. And then it really turned ugly. Like, that's when there was, like, lots of cocaine. They they lived with us for two months after we had to kick them out. Right. So there was this, like, there was this awful, like, vibe. And, obviously, we were, like, really low and depressed and then you know the drummer started shagging my girlfriend at the time um so the whole thing got very ugly very quickly and it was a shame really because what was quite lovely and beautiful and pure had like turned into something very sour and um something that i was quite relieved to kind of put behind me and not really talk to them ever again 
Right, and then there's no relationship there any longer. Not really, you know. I, I mean, Jamie, like the bass player, like he's a lovely guy, you know. And Rafe, the drummer, it's just I think it was a complete f- up situation, you know. Like when when your friend starts shagging your missus, and your missus does that to you, you know, it's never like a one way street, you know. I I prob I wasn't like the best boyfriend in the world. I didn't deserve that, but like you know, there's no action without there's no reaction without your action and and so on and so forth and uh, it was a really weird time you know the amount of emotion that was like floating through the air was really bad and then i mean even the whole experience as well of getting the other two members we had to get members in within of course you got to go back to work we had to get back straight back into work and that process was probably the most difficult like actually opening myself up to Jed and Guest, that was the hardest thing. Because, you know, at the start, I, f- I fucking hated them. I didn't want them in the group. And I was like, you know, I was being forced from all angles, um, you know, to create this band, which I had no real kind of say in. It was, it was really quite soul-destroying. But, you know, luckily, this is a band that constantly lands on its feet like a cat. And... Um, <laughs> You know, we really did land on our feet when it came to Jed and Geff. You know, they're really lovely guys. They're great players. You know, they really do kind of like match the ambition that me and Adam have. And I wouldn't want it any other way now. You know, but at the time it was very difficult to to build. Yeah. Getting to the music, I mean, you guys, you embody sort of this classic notion of rock and roll and a certain type of rock and roll. I mean, now that you've been sort of truly living it for the past few years, like, are there parts of the grandiosity uh, or any of it that you're sort of tired of where you're like, you know, I'm over this aspect, whereas maybe it was super fun, like you said, when you were 18 and now at 28, you're kind of like... Yeah, like the drink and drugs now have kind of... um, have... Well, to me, personally, like, they're coming to... I don't know. I feel like I'm evolving into something else now. Like, when... For for years and, you know, as far as I can remember, as an early teen, I'd always enjoyed drinking. I've always enjoyed recreational substances with parties and whatnot. And um, it was really coming to the States and touring Canada as well that I quickly found out that my habits were going to affect the outcome of my work ethic and there was no matter how how much I kind of like tried to convince myself like you know I I need this gram to get me through the last couple of dates you know it's kind of like I, I learned very quickly that as soon as I looked at the schedule I thought oh god I'm gonna have to really actually think about this because our show is very demanding like what I do I've chosen to kind of put myself on a pedestal and go out there every night and perform like it is, you know, Wembley Stadium every night. And um, and now that is something which has become expected and I can't drop that now. It's not like I can kind of like go back and start to just stare at my feet and, you know, do whatever I want the night before and get through it. I have to like blow people away every night 
So That's I, the standard you've set now. Exactly. So I quickly realized, like, shit, I better start. First of all, it was kind of like three months ago, actually. You know, I was drinking, like, I've always drank before I've gone on stage. You know, but the, the truth of it was I hadn't been on stage sober for 10 years. And, um, you know, and I, and I quickly thought, shit, like, we, we've got a gig. At, we're on stage at this festival at 12. I was, stu- I was drinking, like, whiskey and coke like at 11 a.m. just to kind of get like a little bit of a buzz but that's then, a long stretch and man. then I've got to go through the rest of the day doing the press and my girlfriend she's on tour with me and she was like you know you've got to f-ing stop that you know like you're you're like it's becoming like this necessity and um it's not like I was out of control or anything I was I was functioning perfectly well but it was it was affecting my mood my stamina my emotion because um, it's a constant depressant, you know, and I'm, I'm an emotional person anyway. So I just thought, oh, and here's a funny, even weirder thing that happened. So we're in Honolulu and, you know, we did a show like three months ago and and uh, everything's going, I'm status quo, we're, we're partying all the time and whatnot. And um, I get this call that, you know, I might be called up to play the lead role in this new Freddie Mercury biopic. The, sa- the same one that, like, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen was looking at? Yeah. Wow. So this director got in touch with a guy called Jonas Ackland, who did the video for Could Have Been Me. He's also a Swedish film director. Yeah. So they're very good friends, right? So I get this call, and um, he's like, look, he's really interested in you, and he doesn't really want someone who's hugely well-known, and he's willing to work with someone who you know, just has it, and I've really sold them to you, so I was like, fuck, all right, well, you know, this light just came on, and I was like, you've got to get it together, so I just stopped drinking, and I had, like, a complete sober tour for four weeks, um, you know, and I always, I've always gone to the gym, because I've got to keep the stamina up, but for the first time, I just thought I have to start getting trim, and, you know, if I want to, uh, there was a camera test set up for November, and this was kind of September, so I had all this time to prepare, so I went without a drink for like four weeks and I started to perform sober, which was a thing in itself, which I hadn't done in a while. I was very self-conscious. But I learned not only was I more fulfilled on stage and more animated, when I looked back at the videos, I was like, wow, it looks so much greater. You know, it's mm. so much more edgier, it's so much more on point. I then became like used to it and was like, this is so much more fantastic. This is so much more enjoyable. And, uh, you know, funny enough, the camera test gets closer and closer and then everything goes quiet for six days. And then my manager just said, I'm really sorry, but the, um, the director got kicked off and uh, the production team brought in a new director, which is the guy who's on it now. Gotcha. And he's brought his own lead, lead guy. So it went away. Which happens. These things totally happen. These things, that's fucking Hollywood. Absolutely. Um, you know, so I was a little bit disappointed. I didn't listen to Queen for about three days. Too hard, too soon. It was too soon. Yeah. It was too soon. Um, but, you know, again, everything happens for a reason. And if As a I, function of this opportunity... I learned how to survive and sort of, like, function, perform without being under the influence. And that was kind of, like, that was really important. 
As aside from just you said you look back at the tape and you go, oh look at this is a far better performance. When you're in the moment, do you feel more present? Yeah. Like, was it like what was the major difference? Would you say? I think the major difference was the stamina and the performance, the posture, mm. the control, the voice control. That was those in the main three, like those are like the deathly hallows, so to speak of. <laughs> what I thought was really inspiring, you know, I was looking back, I could hear consistency in the voice, I felt better, sure, you know, um, and I was sort of like delivering everything like with more I had the sparkle back in my eye again, sure, total command of your instrument, yeah, yeah. you know it was it's just fun, um you've talked, you know honestly, about your work ethic and sort of the work ethic required to be successful in this business. Um, on this record, you've made like a ton of sort of in-radios. You've talked a lot about doing press, being sort of available. What are like some pragmatic ideas you think you will take with you to the next record to maybe move the needle? Are there things you learned this time around or you're learning as you go through it where you're like, I'll do this differently. I will do this the same. I need to do more of this. Yeah, I mean, we're getting to that point now where I want to start, you know, I've got two weeks off at Christmas, which I'm really going to dedicate to having a clear vision on what I want this album to sound and look like as well. Like, the look is very <clears throat> important to this band. Well, to me anyway, and I just force everyone on. <laughs> um, well, you are, like, you're such an aesthetic band. That is a, it's yeah. a part, I think, of the <clears throat> It is, and people love that, and they buy into it, and it's one of the reasons why they come to the show. Um, and I have to kind of, like, you know, address that. Do you um, get any blowback from your peers? Is there anybody ever kind of like, oh, we've seen this before? Do you listen to that? Do you not give a shit? Yes, I do, and there have been people you know, who have kind of like called me like a parody and whatnot, but at the end of the day, I'm still just a 16-year-old kid like looking at himself in the mirror, dancing to, you know, don't stop me now. <laughs> you know, um, that's really kind of what it is. I'm just living like a childhood dream. But going back to the question, I think now, you know, it's a very good point because... I'm I'm now I'm seeking to you know dictate my own kind of like person and character on stage because you know who I go on when I go on stage it's 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 not me whatsoever it I have to go into um this character and this character has like changed and developed like from the age of 15 and 16 starting off as like um a Robert Plant Freddie Mercury kind of like parody and then it kind of like changed and I've taken loads of different things from a lot of different people and now I've got the chance to um, you know throw a little bit of money in terms of like what I want to wear and I've and I've had I've got lots of really nice ideas now um, and uh, and the look as well of this album and in terms of like the songs as well like you know like when I when I look at the track listing there's like there's some songs which are five years old and some which are 13 months mm -hmm. you know and some which were which are 10 plus years so I can kind of like 
assess that now and think, okay, what do the audience really react to? And now I can apply that now into the studio and in terms of like this blank canvas which we have, which is album number two, and, and talk as a band and go, you know, um, well, as much as we all love that, we've, we've played it every night, you know, the audience are like, are reacting on a seven compared to this song, which where they're like acting on 11 plus, mm. you know, in terms of like their response. So we should probably look more into this area. So which, that's really cool. And um, I think for the first time, I'm so excited because for the first time ever, we're going to have like a, a release which is going to be at the same time for everybody else in the world, including the UK, uh, Canada, America, everywhere else around the world. And for once, everybody's going to be at the same point at the same time, all of our audience. You know, it's not like we've got all these Brits like talking to America, Americans and Canadians going, well, you know, we heard that like two years ago, you know, of course. We, these are all old songs and everybody's waiting for the second one. So I'm really looking forward to just like getting it out there. A more traditional process instead of exactly. a decade of starts and stops. And starts and stops, reissues, re-recordings and yeah. give well, it one go. All the best in the future, man. Ooh. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. All right, welcome to the dessert. Max, this is a dessert unlike any other because right now our pop culture aficionado and good friend Shane Cunningham is in Honolulu, Hawaii. Yeah, and we're trying this new technology for the first time, uh, FaceTime audio. That's right, we're going to call him. We're gonna, he's basically like, we're going to call him right now. So it's 1.30 in Toronto right now. Meaning it's 8.30 in the morning in Honolulu time. And if the Much Music's uh, Instagram Snapchat feature is any indication, I think Shane might be mildly hungover or potentially still a little uh, shaky. Well, the good thing is he's alive. That's that's a, that's a good thing. Yes. Because that was not going to be a certain thing. <laughs> <laughs> and for our listeners, uh, we actually have already tried to call Shane twice, uh, and then he, he just texted back and said he's looking for better Wi-Fi. Yeah. Well, he's taking um, this whole thing very seriously. Uh, you know, his role as the Mike on Much correspondent in Hawaii. He's he's updating the, the Much Instagram stories like a madman. He's really dead set on getting 18,000 followers. followers. Yeah. He's been fantastic. He's been so funny and, like you said, very dedicated to uh, to his goal. Yeah, it almost concerns me, though, because Shane is a man of extremes. And when he sets his mind to something, he'll do anything to get it, which is scary. Do you know that in his best man speech, that was basically the whole crux of my speech and why I knew that his marriage with Alex would work? Oh, because he just wanted when to make he sets, it. When he sets his mind to something, oh, that's he accomplishes right. his goal. Yeah. Oh, oh, there's the text. Okay, guys, so we're going to give Shane a call right now. Shane, are you there? Ha. Ah. <laughs> oh, there you are. Sean. I am. Can you hear us all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> I just slipped on the pool. <laughs> How is Honolulu? How has your trip been so far? Well, it's, it's interesting because the Sailor Jerry people just showed up yesterday. So I've been here kind of by myself, just like chilling out and kind of partying alone. But it's, it's good because I don't... <laughs> <laughs> it sounds kind of sad, but I, um, I typically, uh, I'm not very social when I go out. I kind of rely on other people to, uh, to kind of like when I'm out with you, you'll kind of hold the conversation and I'll chip in with, 
with the odd joke here or there. Right. Unless I'm like absolutely hammered. But this is kind of <laughs> teaching me to <laughs> this is kind of teaching me to um socialize and be on a trip where you're just totally alone and you have to kind of make friends on your own with no help. So it is an interesting exercise and uh and and obviously I'm I'm trying to film a lot of bits down here. So I have to like give the uh the bellhop guy five bucks to film me for 10 minutes making a drink and stuff like that. I was that, wondering, you know? who was the bellhop that filmed that? <laughs> yeah, but everyone's really nice. They would do it for free, but I feel bad. And I uh, I did a lot of takes on that. And then I, I thought I could film the close-ups myself, but I couldn't. So I, I still had to use him. It's very tricky to film all this shit. The videos are really, really funny. Like, literally, Danica was watching... We were watching Obama's speech, actually, the other night. And she... Uh, <laughs> was like looking at her phone and she just started cackling. And I was like, what are you laughing at? She's like, Shane's videos from Honolulu. And I was like, oh man, so they're really resonating, I feel like. I mean, well, I'm basing that on Danica. No, no it's true. Uh, <laughs> it's a viral hit, at least in the Champagne Boys group and their girlfriends and wives. It's true, we were out for a drink last night and uh, all anybody was talking about was your videos from Honolulu. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we've gained, I'm not sure if you've been following, but we've gained 100 followers since we started. Yeah, no, you're killing it, man. It is awesome. You're, I enjoy so reading the fan mail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know those aren't real, right? Some people have thought they were real. Yeah, but. every uh, yeah. like username is something with a number on the end, suspiciously <laughs> yeah. like ShaneyBoy69. <laughs> well, Myers messaged me. He's like, man, that pedophile comment, that guy is really feeding it to you. I was like, oh, no, I made that up. Because <laughs> I did one, uh, for the listeners, in case they aren't following my uh, Hawaiian hijinks, I did one where... Um, uh, like a, a fan email, someone said I look, I had a big nose and looked like a mustache pedophile. Yes. Pedo is actually the word you use. <laughs> Pedo. <laughs> yeah. hey, but I'm not, I'm actually kind of worried because I'm not sure if, uh, like I, I tried a contest and it totally failed where people um, get Kanye West, Taylor Swift, or one of the Kardashians to retweet Mike on much as the bee's knees. But uh, no, I think it was too impossible. So I started a new one today which is kind of like a, a Mike on Much doppelganger competition, okay. which I think people will actually do. But I just uh, I don't want you to be mad at me because the main thing is to make find someone who looks like Mike Veerman. Oh, geez. That will be entertaining or interesting or soul-crushing. <laughs> well, well, the goal is that I'm going to pick the winner, and it's just going to be like some black guy or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's, you know what I will say is uh, when you do those like much music – or sorry, when you do those Instagram videos – your stills are only up for like four seconds. You got to like reset it so that they stay up for like ten seconds, at least ten. Well, Is that you, a, you can't actually that. do that. Oh, you only can't in Snapchat? do that. So what? What most people do is it's just like a known thing on the Insta stories. You screen grab it. Oh, okay. But uh, for for the contest, um, I put it up for a, a long time, and how I did that was I just repeated it like three or four times. Oh, gotcha. For cool. this new contest. So sh- uh, and then I put a picture of you up. So Shane, what's like the the demo at the hotel? Like, is it like old retired people or the young college kids? Like, who are you hanging out with? Uh, this is a pretty hip spot, so it's a lot of like buff dudes and hot chicks. <laughs> That's nice. That's good. <laughs> yeah, like it's 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 very very chic and hip. Have you made and- any friends? Uh, well, I, the the group yesterday, like, there's people all around the world. There's a, a Russian dude who speaks no English named Serge. There's a Portugal guy named Sergio, and he's uh, he speaks 
fairly good English, so we kind of bonded yesterday. And then there's this guy from New York, Sam, and uh, he's, he's a cool guy. So those are the three people I've kind of bonded with the most, even though the Russian guy does not speak a lick of English, like literally not one word, but I feel like we kind of have a unspoken connection. Well, it has to be unspoken because there's nothing you could really <laughs> yeah. speak about. <laughs> um, and- a lot of hand-holding going on. <laughs> oh, I interviewed Aaron, the Sailor Jerry Canadian ambassador, and that's one thing. When, you, when you're working with Sailor Jerry, you got to remember to kind of say Sailor Jerry and not Sailor Jerry's. Ah. So when you f- that, a lot of people fuck that up, right? <laughs> but, and, and I don't want to if I'm down here um, representing them. But kudos to you, Mike. That It's very hard to do an interview and maintain any semblance of your real personality. Oh, interesting. So you sat down and interviewed him one-on-one. For our listeners, you will be hearing this in a later episode. Shane interviewed, uh, like you said, Aaron, the Sailor Jerry ambassador. And uh, Max mm-hmm. prepped some questions. Like you were the you were the Mike interviewer this time. Yeah, but some, like you know, I know you as a friend. So sometimes you're doing the interview. I'm like that phony Mike putting on that voice. And then when <laughs> I did the interview, I put on this like voice that isn't really me. I'm like, so tell me. And like I'm just like when you hear it, you're gonna say like, whoa, I, I don't know. It wasn't me though. It was like someone else interviewing. It was very odd. And it was it was nerve wracking. You know, like. Uh, scrambling to the questions and then you have your notepad kind of it's like your uh your safety blanket but you don't really use it but just knowing you have it is good did you find that you were able to get into a flow and a conversational sort of back and forth yeah the uh, the hardest part i found i'm not sure if you agree is ending the interview oh interesting interesting I, I, I wasn't sure when the ending point and then I was like, okay, this is the dessert segment so uh you know it's only going to be about uh 10 or 15 minutes he's like dessert He's like, wait, wait, this is only 10 minutes? It was like he didn't know who I was or what. Like, it's almost like he thought I was the main host or something. He's like, he's like, shit, I thought you were on longer than that, man. So it, it, it kind of felt like I was going to be, like, deported or whatever. Um, when did he get down to Hawaii? He was down, uh, like, he came down a day before I did. And he kind of, again, a misconception about me, I don't drive a Harley or ride a Harley. <laughs> so I think he thought we were going to be like riding the coast together or whatever. And like, you know, going on a little adventure, but I'm not going to ride a Harley. <laughs> I saw you on the back of his Harley. Uh, would you say Yoo-hoo or something or toodaloo? Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't say Yoo-hoo cause I was too worried that that would seem, um, homophobic. So I said like Tweedledee or something. <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> um, but that, like, well, honestly, you, were- you- you were hugging him so that tight. That is terrifying. Well, yeah, you- yeah, and that guy's pretty ripped too. Um, but you have to hold on so tight, way harder. If you're ever riding the back of a motorcycle, and I didn't wear a helmet, kid, so don't be like Shane because you could – I almost – and I was kind of like half in the bag at that point too. I almost flew off, literally. <laughs> he's, he's a really cool dude. Is there anything else that, that, uh, that has been going on there that you need to tell us about? I think I think the, I'm kind of doing a somewhat complicated video edit that I haven't released yet. So maybe by the time people listen to this, still th- th- it'll actually still be up on the story to see. I'll, I'll still put it on the mic on much Instagram. Okay. And uh, yeah, I'm still pursuing this 18,000 follower dream, man. <laughs> we're, we're, we're at 500 that. right now, right? Yeah, we're at 500. Yeah, so only a couple <laughs> yeah, more to go. Yeah, but we started at 424. <laughs> hey, th- we and it's rise. only been three days, guys. No, and you're killing it out there. Is there anything you miss from home? Just you guys. <laughs> oh, oh, and uh, my wife. 
<laughs> oh, that, by the way, Greg Veerman thought that was the funniest thing you ever posted was the uh, <laughs> telling all these ladies I'm married, but then as the drink gets more and more drank, uh, you're single. Well, how did it go? Explain it to the people. Well, when you ha- well, it was like I, the joke was obviously women aren't hitting on me out here, but I said uh, pool problems, women keep hitting on me, <laughs> and I keep telling them. And then I did a post of me with a full drink. I'm a happily married man. Then I did another post with a half drink and drink, and it was like, but truth is we're having some problems. And then I did a post where two drinks were completely empty, and I said my wife died in a skydiving accident and put my wedding ring beside the drinks. <laughs> um, how often are you guys talking? Are you calling in every day to talk to your wife? Not really. It's it's hard with the uh, time difference, and I'm like I'm constantly doing shit, and I'm very uh, like on the Instagram story. It seems like I'm like having so much fun in this crazy guy. But I'm so frustrated with this editing program. I broke down into tears yesterday and cried for a minute. The bellboy just starts rubbing your back. It'll be okay. <laughs> you hand him a five. Well, it was something so stupid. I wanted to add beeps because uh, I did a, a fan mail where um, the joke was this guy swearing at me constantly in the in the email. Yeah. But I, all I wanted to do was add sensor beeps. But that is so difficult that it actually made me break down and cry. So, no, I haven't been in contact with Alex a lot. Well, you're killing it out there, buddy. Max, do you have any more questions for our pop culture aficionado? No. Uh, stay safe, man. Uh, apparently, uh, Dennis G, Dennis Graham, uh, is in Honolulu right now, according to Instagram. Whoa. So you should try to find Drake's dad. That would be awesome. Yeah. Okay, I'll do that. I'll I have his number. I'll, t- I'll text it to you. Max has Drake's dad's number. He's going to text it to you, Shane. Shane, you find him, and we'll see him on a much uh, snap story. All right, brother. Have fun, and we'll see you when you get back. Actually, we'll talk you to you too. Then. I love you. Love you. We love you. That's it. That's all. That's our episode. Thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you uh, for subscribing. I'm assuming if you listen to this podcast, you've already subscribed to to our iTunes uh, feed. And if you haven't, do it right now. Leave a comment and a rating, please. Thank you so much. All the artwork is done by Jenna Gregory from jennasdoodles.com. You can follow us at Much on Instagram and Twitter. Check us out on YouTube, although you might be listening right now on YouTube. Do you have anything else to say, Max? See you next week. No, I'm just kidding. You do that. (laughs) See you next week if we don't die on the weekend.